Exodus chapter 9, read from the New International Version. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not, one, not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took the suits from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the, the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me on all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people, I will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst, worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt, from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on people and animals, and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, 
When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop there. There will be no more hail, so you, can, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out to the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. Then Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped. He sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Well, good morning, and let me add to Robin's welcome. It's lovely to have you with us, and what a privilege it is for us to open up God's Word, to have it in our own language, and to know that God speaks to us as we have had it read and as we think through it together. Um, um, If I haven't met you before, I should do this. Uh, My name is Duncan. I serve as pastor here, and um, please do stay for tea and coffee afterwards. Um, If we haven't met, please do introduce yourself to me. And uh, turn back to Exodus chapter 9. If you have a Bible, that would be great if you could have that open. Um, If not, the passage is printed in our diary that you hopefully received on the way in. And I want to ask you something. Take a moment to think about what your first answer to this would be. What is God like What is God like? What comes to your minds? Perhaps you think of the relational qualities of God, and so you think God is like a father. Maybe you look out the window and uh, you get a glimpse of the creation, and you think God is like an artist. Or maybe you think of God's raw power, and you think God is like a king or a ruler. Lots of other likenesses in your heads, probably. I'm here to tell you that all of your answers are wrong. All of them. And I say that because that's the point of this part of the book of Exodus, really. Whatever you think God is like, He's not. The book of Exodus is the story of God rescuing his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. God has sent Moses back into Egypt to demand of Pharaoh that he let his people go. And so far, Pharaoh has responded with scorn. And in fact, when first instructed, he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, God has decided to show Pharaoh who he is. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Exodus chapter 7, where we have the first of of ten strikes or ten plagues that God delivers against Egypt. We saw the water in the River Nile turned into blood. And the description of the first nine plagues that fall, they run from chapter 7 through to chapter 10, and it's quite a repetitive read. Um, And so you'll see that we have jumped into chapter 9, and it's to help us hopefully just get a grasp of the flow and the pattern of how these plagues are described for us. 
So, what you missed in chapter 8 is that there's a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies. And here today in chapter 9, we have plagues number 5, 6, and 7. And it does seem an unusual way for God to act, a strange way to get things done. And we instinctively want to ask, well, why? Why go to all this bother? When, as it was mentioned in our chapter, wasn't it? God said that, you know, I could have wiped you off the face of the earth. Why does he go to all this trouble? Well, it's because of that question that I posed at the outset. What is God like? If you look at verse 14 of this chapter, Moses is to tell Pharaoh that plagues are going to fall on him and his people. Why? So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The reason for judgment falling on Egypt in this way is so that Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and we too might understand that God isn't like anything. There's nothing that we could point to that could be a worthy comparison with who God is. There is none like Him. And we started to see that last time as we began to think through these, these plagues. God makes Himself known in these events as the God who has dominion over the natural world. We thought about that last time, and we see it again in chapter 9, don't we? God sends a plague of sickness on the Egyptian livestock, a plague of boils on humans and animals, and a thunderstorm of hail. These are the things that God is in command of. We saw also that God has dominion over the future. And again, we have that explicitly in our chapter, don't we? God sets the, the date and the time. Tomorrow, at a certain time, this is going to happen. But then particularly verse 12, verse 35 of this chapter, we're told things pan out just as the Lord had said. He has dominion over the future. And we saw as well that the Lord has dominion even over the hearts of kings and here again, we see the Lord hardening or strengthening Pharaoh's heart in verse 12. But there's so much more on show. God is saying so much more to us than that. So, let's track some of these other things down. You know, um, motives are hard things to assess. They're impossible to assess in someone else and a nightmare to assess in ourselves. I mean, think about that time that you did a good deed for someone if you just think about it on the surface level, you know, we did that good thing because we care about that person, right? But if you stop and you think about it for long enough, you find there's other stuff mixed in there that maybe we wish wasn't mixed in there. We find that actually we do quite like the feeling that it gives me to do good to someone. And actually, when I look even deeper, I do like how it makes me look in front of others. Motives are hard things to pin down. We are complicated beings. But the Bible shows us that when it comes to God, He does not have muddled motives. He doesn't. He is motivated by one primary thing in everything he does. So, why did He create us, for example? 
Well, through the prophet Isaiah, God says, "'Bring my sons from afar, bring my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory.'" Well, why did God choose Israel to be His people then? Again, through Isaiah, God would say, "'You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified.'" Well, why would God raise up a wicked king like Pharaoh? Look at verse 16 of our chapter. For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why does God do anything at all? The answer is for his own glory. And that word glory, I suppose, is a word we often use without always being clear about what it means. And I think verse 16 gives us something of a definition of it. It's so that God might be clearly seen. It's God making Himself known. So, when we speak about giving glory to God or glorifying God, we're not speaking about giving Him something that He doesn't already have. It is, it is putting God on display, His attributes demonstrated for all to see. That's what it means for God to be glorified. And so, from His own lips, God tells us His highest motivation is Himself. His highest motivation is Himself. The person who is most passionate about God's glory, the one who's most passionate about it, is God Himself. And our first instinct when we hear that might be to be a little bit uncomfortable, because most of us really can't stand people who are concerned for their own glory. There is hardly a more tedious thing than someone who is always boastful and who is self-absorbed. If that's news to you, receive it. Of course, when sinful humans are like that, it is ghastly. I mean, what do we have to boast about? But with God? Well, God is the supremely glorious being. He is the one who is perfect in all that He is, in all that He does, in all that He says. His commitment to goodness and to rightness and to justice is impeccable. No, it is right for God to be concerned for His glory, for He is glorious. He is the only one who has the right to receive the praise and the worship and the adoration of all of creation. He is God. This being must be exalted. And that's why He created the entire cosmos, to display His glory. And I have news for you today, exciting news Whoever you are here today, this has implications for you. When the Apostle Paul wrote uh, one of his letters to a church in a city called Colossae, he described for those Christians 
um, how supremely wonderful Jesus is. And here's part of what he wrote, Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him. That is, he is the God who spoke all things into being. And all things were created for him. The universe this world, the diversity of life on this planet were created by Jesus for Jesus, for His glory. You were made to bring glory to Jesus Christ. You. You were made to know God, to live dependent upon God, in submission to God, as a creature submits to his cre Creator, and in so doing to glorify God. But that's not what the history of the human race tells us has happened, is it? From our first ancestors onwards, every one of us has instead worshipped something else, and though we could list a lot of things that we have worshipped, they all eventually come back to the same place, and they come back to ourselves. We have made ourselves the most important person in the universe. What I want, therefore, is more important than what God wants. We are not doing, and we are not being what God made us for but here's the wonderful thing. Jesus Christ has come to restore us again to what we were made to be. When Paul writes to another church in the city of Ephesus, reminding Christians of all that they have because they trust in Jesus, he says things like this. He says, in Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator of all things. To live a life that is to His glory is not something for me to sell to you. This is what you were made for, I'm not here to offer you a, a, a convincing package deal. You were made for this. This is exactly what you and I owe to Him. And through His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, it means that you can actively glorify Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ calls, in fact, He commands everyone to repent to turn away from living for self and instead believe in Him and submit to Him. There's no other way. Because any other way of trying to glorify God is setting myself above Jesus. 
That's not where you were made to be. And we are warned that he who exalts himself will one day be brought low and will be brought low by God himself. And even as Christians, we can find this hard to hear. We can find it hard to hear that God would act so as to glorify himself. And we do need the reminder regularly because it is the greatest privilege that a human being can ever know to have their sins forgiven, to be united to Jesus Christ by faith, to have a restored purpose in life and a sure hope after death. But what we learn in these plagues that fall on Egypt about who God is, is that however privileged that is for us, it is not all about you. It's not all about me. The primary motivation for God to save you was not you. It was Him. God's highest motivation is Himself. The privilege for us is being part of this eternal divine project of God being glorified. That's what the Christian life is about. And yet, how easily it becomes all about me. What are some of the signs that we might be falling into that trap? Forgetting that it's all about him and making it all about me. When our favorite worship songs are the ones that say, I, me, and my, far more than they speak about God or Christ, we're in danger of falling into that trap. When I'm regularly disgruntled in church because something doesn't suit me, when I treat the Bible or even the church like another consumer product, and I take the bits that I like and I reject the bits that I don't, or maybe when I think more about what others should be doing for me than what I can do for them, or maybe when I'm more concerned that I have an opportunity to express my opinion than to hear God's truth. Boy, I need to hear all of these things because, friends, it's not about me and it's not about you. When we come to know Jesus Christ, we learn that actually the reason this world is here and the reason why I have breath in my lungs and the reason why God has saved me through His Son is that it's all about Him. We need to be on board with God's. It is right that His highest motivation is Himself. And so our highest motivation must be, needs to be, whatever will bring glory to Him. And I think that's what makes the next point I want to show you all the more wonderful. There is something lovely, isn't there, about getting to know someone really, really well, assuming you like them. Say it's your husband's or your children. One of the signs that you know them really well is that you almost instinctively can pick them out of a crowd. you know what I mean? So if I walk past the school at break time and uh, the playground is full of children, I can usually spot pretty quickly where my little ones are because I recognize the way that they run. I recognize their posture. 
I recognize their tactics when they get in a fight. Um, that's a joke, that's a joke, that's a joke. <laughs> but you could say the same, couldn't you, for picking your wife's voice out in a noisy room? There's something really lovely about knowing someone that well. Well, try to picture this scene. God is bringing his judgment upon Egypt. It's a large nation. Lots of people live there. And among them is his people, the Israelites. Will he really allow his people to be caught up in the judgment that he's sending? I don't know if you noticed that, but in each of the three plagues in this chapter, God distinguishes between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Let's, let's look at this. The, the plague that falls on the livestock, you see verse 6. It says, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Then you come, come to the plague of boils, which break out into sores on man and beast. Notice verse 11. It says, and the, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians, i.e. not upon the Israelites. And then the plague of hail that destroys everything that's in the field. The barley crop destroyed, any people or animals outdoors are struck down too. But look at what is the detail that's given for us in verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. You can't miss this here, even in the vastness of Egypt. God knows His people. God knows His people. I mean, this was at the first, the great encouragement to the Israelites at the end of chapter 4, when Moses came and for the first time spoke to them saying, listen, the Lord's not forgotten you. He knows what you're going through and He's promised to deliver. It was great encouragement to them to know that God knows them. And that's seen in how he preserves them from the judgment that falls. And it's this kind of assurance that God knows his people that comes to the believer in Christ as well. Jesus himself in John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Easy to forget this because there is just such a busyness to our world. Think of the population of the world. There's now more than 8 billion of us on this planet and we create a lot of activity. Eight billion people generates a lot of noise and a lot of trouble. And we think in the midst of all of that, how could God pay any attention to me? There's so much more going on. Well, this is who God is. This is how God wants us to understand him and to know him. He knows each and every one of his people. And the commitment that he makes to them he's able to stand by and deliver on, to never leave them or forsake them and never to forget them. And so whatever is going on in your life right now, if you're a Christian, it's not because God has forgotten you. That thing that you're dreading, that 
that, that, that incident that burdens you, that changed all of your plans, that thorn in your flesh that just won't go away, none of these things are because God has forgotten you. No, God knows His people. You are the recipient of God's particular saving love, and that commitment that He's made to you is unbreakable. And the Bible teaches that Jesus will return one day to judge the earth. The way the Bible describes it is, is, is using some terrifying language. It, the language is almost as if the fabric of the universe will begin to disintegrate. It's that kind of thing. And then, well, what about us? What about us? Are we going to be simply caught up in all of that? Well, when Paul was writing to some new Christians, he tells them how people have been talking about what happened to them. This is in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, they report how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a security that comes to the believer, and it's the security of Jesus Christ Himself. He is holding us in His hand, to use His words. He's keeping us. Even though the earth crumbled to nothing, we will be secure with Him. So, friends, you will get sick, you will face trials, you will be rejected, and you will die. But spiritual life is always yours in Jesus Christ, and there's nothing that can take it from you, not even your worst fear right now, because nothing can take Jesus from you. God knows His people, and Christian, He knows you. Don't forget it. Well, as the plague of hail is falling on Egypt, it seems to draw a response from Pharaoh. If you look at verse 27, we're in real danger of getting our hopes up that um, the book of Exodus might end in the next chapter or two. Because in verse 27, what does, Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh say? He says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. At last, we think, he gets it. Well, maybe not. Uh, Moses, verse 29, you see he agrees to draw the storm to a stop so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But, verse 30, as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And you've got this, um, certainly in the translation I'm using, verses 31 and 32, you see, are, are in brackets, are in parenthesis. And it seems they're there to explain why Pharaoh doesn't yet fear the Lord his God. Um, because even though they've lost the early crops in the fields, you know, the barley harvest came earlier in the year, there were still crops that were yet to come up. And so it seems in Pharaoh's mind, he's thinking, well, you know, we've still got the resources to come through this. You know, the wheat harvest hasn't yet come yet, hasn't come yet. We could do all right. He still thinks he has the resources to endure. And so sure enough, in verse 34, when the storm abates, 
we're told Pharaoh sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants, and he reneges on his promise. What does this tell us about God's? It tells us that God is more concerned with your heart than your words. He's more concerned with your heart than your words. Because you see here that Pharaoh seems to say the right things, doesn't he? He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges the rightness of the Lord. He acknowledges the Lord's power to bring this judgment to an end. And yet, his motive in saying these things is not because he fears the Lord, not because he reveres or honors the Lord, not because he has a desire to glorify the Lord, but rather Pharaoh's motive is self-preservation. You see, Pharaoh is still the center of Pharaoh's universe. And one of the shifts that we see as we progress through the plagues that fall on Egypt is how the people around Pharaoh move away from him and increasingly recognize the Lord. And that begins here when Moses warns Pharaoh of the hailstorm that's to come. It says in verse 20, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. You see, even among the Egyptians, there were those who recognized who the God of the Hebrews was, and they came to fear Him, and they took Him at His word, and they responded in faith. And even when the Israelites will eventually leave Egypt, we'll see that some Egyptians left with them. They joined themselves to God's people. And here we're seeing God deals graciously with Pharaoh again. Pharaoh's given another opportunity, and in fact, the next plague, Pharaoh's going to do exactly the same thing again. Time and again, in the Word of God, God makes Himself known to us as the God who looks upon the heart. And this is especially a word for anyone who's just going through the motions, isn't it? And for anyone who's just content to go through the motions. Who cares how good your theology is? Who cares how orthodox your hymn singing is? If we're not driven to do that by a love for the Lord. One of the great affronts to God among His people, um, which comes up a couple of times in the Scriptures, are leaders who, in God's words, this, who, who draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. You know, the Lord has given so much that we might know so much more than mere ritual, mere external compliance. The Lord Jesus has given Himself that we might know Him. The God whose highest motivation is Himself, who knows and protects His people, wants us to know Him to love Him, to bring glory to Him, for that to be our greatest desire. How could that ever apply to someone like me? Well, simply through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And how right it is 
that we're going to come in a moment to the Lord's Supper to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us. We see in this book of Exodus that God is a God of judgment, and yet for sinners He has heaped His judgment on His Son that we might be saved. And that is good news for everyone here, because the, the, the call comes to every one of us to come to Jesus, to know that the only safe place, the only land of Goshen where the judgment isn't going to fall is in Him, belonging to Him, sheltering in Him, and finding that it's more than just self-preservation, but we are brought to know this God for whose glory we were made and saved. So, let me urge you today, if you never yet trusted Christ, and maybe even people around you think you have, come to Him today in simple faith. It's not all about you. Turn away from being the center of your own little world and bow the knee before Jesus Christ. And for all of us who belong to Jesus today, let's make this commitment to Him and to one another that we will be turned out from ourselves, turned towards Him, turned towards each other, that He might be glorified. Because what He has done for the people in this room is entirely to His glory. Lives that have been transformed, sins that have been forgiven and the great hope that we have of eternal life in Him. That is all to His glory. Let's never dilute that. And we get an opportunity to glorify Christ in our hearts and together as we share in this bread and wine together in a moment. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.